0: Well, welcome to Dharma Central, everybody. I am the pinch hitter today Uh, when Lama Kathy's out of town. um, We uh, take some time and cover some material that, uh, as a practice and study committee, we agree uh, we'd like to cover, and so the talk will be taken from Tranga Rinpoche's um, book that's free online at Rinpoche.com on the 7-point mind mind training. Today, we're at uh, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is about evaluating our progress. That's an interesting thing. It actually is sort of timely since we're in a synagogue. We're about to enter the High Holy Days and we're about to have a Least one, I think one Sunday elsewhere because it'll be in the High Holy Days. I think that's in two weeks. Um, the High Holy Days in Judaism, she thought you, you thought I was going to teach Dharma. (laughs) (laughs) Is actually, it's interesting. It starts with what's called New Year or Head of the Year, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh meaning Head, Hashanah meaning the year. And it's unusual in that most New Year's in most cultures are celebrated sometime just after uh, the winter solstice when the sun is coming back. And here we're celebrating right around the fall equinox, completely different. Um, in fact, it's about to get darker, not lighter. I asked a rabbi about that once, and he said... The reason we celebrate New Year in the fall is that's when the harvest time was in the Northern Hemisphere, um, where all this culture kind of developed. And at New Year, what we do is we harvest what we've been growing all year, and we evaluate how good we have been. We evaluate... If we've been good farmers, whether we've gotten good fruits and vegetables and grains and so on and so forth. And and after evaluating, we start over. And when we start over, how do we do that? We do that as the sun goes away. We become more quiet and more contemplative and we really take it in. And that's sort of the spirit, actually, of the sixth point of mind training is like, okay, we've gone, we've gone through these first five chapters and we've absorbed a lot of stuff or we haven't. We've practiced a lot of stuff or we haven't, but we've got some result. And it's a, it's an encouragement. This chapter is an encouragement to look at that results. And really give a close evaluation and analyze it a little bit and decide what's next in order to continue growing and changing and improving. Um so that's, that's sort of the spirit of this of this moment. I kind of I kind of like it, uh, because I think along the line what tends to happen is is we meditate We first learned to just do quiet shamatha, sitting meditation. And what we really are doing there is cultivating a mind that lets go of what we normally cling to. Why do we do that? I mean, thoughts in our minds are prevalent. They happen all the time. It's good that they happen all the time. If they didn't happen all the time that would indicate a problem because our minds are designed to create thoughts. The issue is more our relationship to them, and that's what we'll be looking at today in terms of um, how we evaluate our progress. What's our relationship to stuff? How has it changed? In the Dharma, um, we tend to look at things from the point of view of the the Buddha being the physician, we're sick, okay? First of all, we're all sick. Um, <laughs> the Buddha is the physician. The Dharma is the medicine. And as we take the medicine, we hope to get better. And what does get better mean? Well, get better means that um, suffering disappears. It's just like being physically ill and taking medicine You've been suffering because you had a sickness, and you take the medicine, you get better. The suffering goes away. Uh, the Buddha Dharma is particularly about all the suffering we cause ourselves because of the way we relate to whatever appears in our life um, through our mental processes. So the teaching is, is that there are three poisons, And the three poisons are unhealthy desire or attraction. You know, real clingy stuff. This all has to do with clinging. Or mental aversion. Or we get angry because there's stuff coming at us we don't like. And we get pissed about that because everybody knows we're supposed to be living heaven on earth. Ha, ha, ha. Joke's on us. The more we cling to that idea, the worse it gets. So the Buddha Dharma is looking at particularly aversion, what we don't like, what we're angry about, um, what we have a hard time handling and run away from. So that's the second poison. And the third is just apathy. Stuff we could care about happens, and we don't care about it or bewilderment, which is sort of the same thing. Stuff is happening, and it's just overwhelming. And rather than engaging it and finding how it's workable, which would be, you know, a creative opportunity, we don't. We just kind of, man, I think I want to see Beat Bobby Flay on the Food Network again. That's what I do. I like watching Beat Bobby Flay. I don't know why. I like watching people who are good at cooking. It's just the thing um, so in mind training, what we've gotten so far in the first five points um, are a bunch of tools we can use, a bunch of methods we can use to train our minds differently to do to be different. Um, one of our teachers what some of these things are a little odd I mean. One of the main teachings that we've gotten Daryl covered uh, a couple times ago is this meditation called taking and sending where, where, you know, first you do a little bit of quiet sitting meditation and cultivate this mind that lets go. And then you use your imagination to see someone in front of you or some group in front of you that is uh, suffering. And rather than just praying that their suffering would go away, you say, I want to take that on myself and remove it from them and let it enter me. And may they have all my happiness and my joy and all the blessing in my life. So we're giving away that which we would normally cling to and taking on that which we would normally avoid. This is the core of altruistic way of being in life and at the other from an objective point of view you might think why would i want to take on what i don't want and give away what i want to hold on to i asked uh one of our teachers barter tulku rinpoche that question once and he said it's like this our minds in this life come rolled up like a poster that you would buy at a store. And when you get it home, if you just tack that post, take it out of its wrapping and tack it to the wall, all you'll have is a tube rolled up because it won't just fall down by itself. It's it's got this habit of being rolled up in a tube. We've all had this before. He said, so what do you do? He said, he said, you roll it backwards. You literally roll it in the opposite direction. Which isn't just saying, I'm going to straighten it out. It's like rolling it out in, in the opposite direction so that it will straighten out. And that's the nature of what mind training does. You should never, ever think that this training is about... um that this training is about something other than actually changing the way we relate to life, because that's what it is. When football teams, which we're about to engage in now, run through tires in the practice field, it isn't because there are tires on a football field. It develops agility and strength and quickness and things like that. Well, the Lojong teachings are here to develop Agility and strength and quickness in our minds. All right? So the, the, the quintessential way of evaluating our own practice is, how are we doing on selflessness? What do we mean? Well, all of us walk around, I would wager, at least I do, thinking I'm pretty important and what I feel is important, and what I I want to get away from is important, and so on and so forth. And it's only rarely that I really, really think about what's important for others first. It's not that I don't think about that, but I mean really first. And Trangga Rinpoche says, the way you know you made some progress is you think about others first and you put yourself literally below others. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read you a quote that I just saw um this week or last week and then we'll do the traditional way of starting teachings after my rather long preamble um by um praying the four line refuge prayer um Anybody who knows it can chant it along with me. Anybody who doesn't, just follow along in your heart thinking that um, there's enlightened mind there, that you have as much Buddha nature as Shakyamuni did, and you want to uncover it. That's what we're taking refuge in, is in the nature of our own mind. And in the teachings that help us loosen up whatever is covering that over, and then each other for our support. So that's Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So when I was looking over these teachings, um, a couple things stuck out to me, because there are four points here that we'll cover, and every single one has the same answer. I'll cut to the chase, which is, how you doing on Selflessness. Clinging to self is the cause of suffering. Freedom from that clinging is the cause of joy. So how are we doing on that? Well, we're afraid to let go of this self. What will happen? What will happen to me? Well, there's that me again. And Trungpa Rinpoche said, Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw, beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to share your heart with others. That's as good a description of what selflessness from the Dharma perspective is that I've ever read. And then there was uh, something I read from Akong Rinpoche, who was actually his partner when they first brought Buddhism to the West. And this was an exhortation of people coming out of retreat, actually. And he says, My hope for you is that when you come out of long retreat, you will be the humblest, not the proudest. Of people, if any of you wants to parade as a llama, I don't want to know you anymore. You should be like a broom, the lowest, ready to serve and be of use, whatever is needed. No matter how dirty you get, as long as you can be of benefit to someone. He he said that to the. Um, First, the 1984 class of um, the first long retreat at Sami Ling, uh, I was really moved by those things. So I hope I hope they were moving for you too. And with that feeling, let's um,
1: chant the four line refuge prayer. sanje chu dang so ki nam la chang chu kyamsuchi ta gi jin pe so naam ki rola penchi sanje ruparsho Sanjay Chudang So Ki La Chang Chu Bardu Dak Ni Kyab Chi Dak Ijen So Pe So Nam Rola Pinshir Sanjay Show Sanje chudang so ki nam la. pardu dagni ni kyap su chi. So pe ki pe so nam ki. la dru Thank you.
0: So, the key thing to remember here is that these teachings have been around for a long time. And actually, 100,000 people, maybe more, have become enlightened practicing these teachings. They're powerful and they're, they're good. And if we evaluate our practice and say, Oh, today I was really cared a lot more about how other people were doing than myself. That's good. You've made some progress. Keep going. That's always the advice I get whenever somebody, A teacher and I'm in an interview and I ask a question and they say that I made some progress. Of course, immediately I get all puffed up and immediately that blows that. But they don't, they see it and don't say much about that. They just say, good, keep going, keep going. Then on the other hand, uh, if you look at how your day went and at the end of the day you realized you were just totally self-involved, and you missed all kinds of opportunities to be somehow altruistic. Um, you don't think exactly that the practice doesn't work. That's not it, because obviously it works. We've got living proof, actually, right in our midst. We realize that there must be some obstacle And then we have to contemplate, okay, what's that obstacle? Generally, those three poisons in Buddhist psychology evolve into five poisons. And those poisons are um, transformed directly into what we call the five wisdoms if we apply the practice. So we can evaluate ourselves by looking at Was there jealousy in there today? You know, when you see something good happens to somebody else, you can think, oh, that should have been me. I wish it was me, all that kind of thing, and get really jealous. I deserve that. They didn't deserve that. Obviously, that's going to cause us a lot of suffering. You know? Look at that. We both ordered the same dish, and their dish looks better than mine. What's up with that? They got more spaghetti, you know, more sauce, whatever. That's, that's really, it's, it's just not a very helpful way of living life, but yet we all do. So there's this jealousy that we deal with. And, and by working, looking at it directly and not running away from it, actually using it as part of our practice, we can transform it because we got actually practices that work. And the wisdom that goes with that is called all accomplishing wisdom. Well, if you can accomplish everything, if you know you can accomplish everything, if you know that you have Buddha nature and you can activate it, what's there to be jealous of? Right? So then there's anger or aversion. It happens to all of us. We all get stuff we don't want. We all don't have stuff we do want. And then we all get poked now and then because we did get apathetic or bewildered and didn't respond to something we should have responded to. And at the end of the day, it just pisses us off. Obviously, being pissed off is kind of the opposite of happiness and joy, it's suffering. And it happens in moments like driving is a famous moment, getting cut off or getting afraid and then reacting in anger because something made us afraid happens all the time. The wisdom that goes along with that is patience. So when anger comes up, if you can just be patient, cultivate patience, watchful, intelligent, understanding patience that is actually one of the wisdoms of the buddhas then there's pride we're all proud of what we've got and how good we are um, I have got the best fill in the blank and um, the, the thing that goes with pride actually is equanimity it's interesting. And attached to that is generosity. And what do we mean by that? Well, the equanimity is that everything that appears and exists is compounded by causes and conditions and atoms and molecules, and it all comes together in a particular way because of just the physics of life on Earth. And, and therefore, it's all the same. It's all equal. It's not the same. It's equal. The same is wrong. Um, in terms of value to me. And therefore, I can give you the best that I've got. I can. I can give it away. And generosity grows up out of this sense of, uh, taking away the hierarchy of things and the judgment of things. If I see that you need something and I have only something I cherish because it's the best, I can give it to you. Actually, because I, I, I actually recognize it's that relationship that's more important in, in removing suffering for myself and for you. That's what's important. It's not having the nicest gold leafed Bible, you know, on the block. I can give you my family Bible. It's okay. If you need it, you got it. There's something to do with equanimity there. Then, then there's our famous, you know, attached desire. There's positive desires and negative desires, obviously. Our desire to manifest Buddhahood isn't, like, in this discussion. But our desire to get stuff... Because we think if we just get this stuff, we'll be happy. That's the deluded desire. The Buddha Dharma's teaching that letting go brings happiness, not getting stuff brings happiness. We actually can acquire or attain Buddhahood by letting go, not by getting the perfect mala. Oh my gosh. There are articles written about what malas are made of and how they should be made and if you get just the right one and you hold it just the right way and for the right practice, you're going to get enlightened. That's I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. But I'm suspicious. I think what is important is to get something that if you need it for your practice, then get it. And if you get it, use it and do the practice. Then you'll get enlightened. But... We twist these things up, so there's this desire. And the wisdom that is attached to that is discrimin- what's called discriminating wisdom. So just before, we let go of judgment. But that doesn't mean that things aren't different, and we can't tell the difference between different things. It's actually important to be able to do that. It's important to be able to understand what's wholesome and what's not wholesome, what's a real driver towards our goal and what's not a driver towards our goal what may be an obstacle that's one of the most important things to get wrap your mind around because if you don't understand what your obstacles are when you don't make progress you'll have a hard time making progress it's like that um and then lastly there's this uh poison of ignorance and um The wisdom, (laughs) the wisdom, uh, from transforming ignorance is wisdom. And that wisdom is the wisdom of no self. And that's what we're here to look at today. That's how we evaluate all our mind training. It comes down to that one point. So, I finally got to the first point. It's the first slogan which is number 19 for those keeping a scorecard, which says all the Buddha's dharma converges on a single point. That's the single point. So whether you're practicing in the Theravada style or in the Mahayana style or in the Vajrayana style, they're just different styles different methodologies, but they all converge on one point, which is, we're wearing down these obstacles that we have from seeing who we really are. Who we are right now is Buddha's to be. Most of us don't think about that. It's good to look up, look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm a Buddha to be. And then be watchful all day long to see what what obstacles to seeing yourself that way are? What do Buddhas do? Well, you know, I read a little piece on uh, the first Jawa Karmapa and how he attained Buddhahood in his lifetime. Turns out he had a hut that was alongside a cave up in a mountain, and he got instructions for practice from his guru, Gampopa. And he went into this hut, which was so small, it didn't have room for him to lay down in it. He had to sit up. And he sat up and he practiced for years. And always, always, always kept in the forefront of his mind that he was doing this for the benefit of others. This is really hard, rigorous stuff. His teacher told him to do it. He did it because he realized he didn't have insight, and his teacher did. And he kept in the forefront of his mind that all the hardship that he was going through was in some way to benefit others. And son of a gun, he achieved enlightenment, and he began to spread the teachings that actually we are studying here in this place. He established the Karmakaju lineage. It came from him following his teacher's directives and going through it for the benefit of others. So there's this subtle point about why, okay, I'm doing this for my enlightenment to be free of suffering. Why? Why? It's because... We need to be enlightened to really and truly be able to benefit others completely and thoroughly and really help remove at least something that's in the way of them being free of suffering. That's the whole deal. Um, and all the, all, all the Buddhist practices or all the Buddhist, um, lineages agree on this point. That we reduce or eliminate the clinging to a self. So you ask yourself, this is the evaluation part. Do I still consider myself important? It's a good question. Have I allowed the boundaries of myself to melt into sacred reality? That's a good question. In the Hinayana form, we're just letting go of thoughts and returning to a still point, to the point where we cultivate a mind that lets go. And we're always present. So whatever comes, like fresh insight, can pop into our minds and we might know what we're doing. Maybe. In the Mahayana we're trying to transform stuff. So, we'll, we'll imagine that we're taking in someone's suffering and, and offering whatever happiness and goodness we have. In the Vajrayana, we dissolve the boundaries of ourself and imagine ourselves as one form or another of the Buddha, complete with all the activities spreading out within the whole mandala of the buddha which means all and everything it's, nothing is untouched um it's a gradual process and one thing builds on another first you need to have a mind that lets go so yep you got to get on the cushion and you practice every day um i get real rusty and um, have a mind that clings instead of a mind that lets go if I let too many days go by without getting on the cushion. Then I have to practice, because I am basically selfish, I have to really practice thinking about myself as somebody who's here for the benefit of others. As as Akong Rinpoche said, not the llama, the broom. Um... Yeah, I like that image a lot. And there are practices for that that we've been going over. And then in the Vajrayana, when we get together and do Chen Rezi or Tara or any of those practices, we're giving our mind a taste of at least being able to imagine ourselves as enlightened beings. And this is a powerful way of breaking down the boundaries. But why are we doing that? Well, When we call out to Tara, for instance, it's because we need help. It's like, Mom, help, quick, and she's ready to roll, man. That's why when she sits there, she's not sitting in that full lotus position, just all locked in. She's actually got her right foot stretched out, ready to go when you call her. That's who we imagine ourselves to be. So we have the full power and the insight, the willingness to get out there and, and benefit others. Um, there's this story about how we fool ourselves when we enter into this kind of practice. It's a Jewish story. It's a High Holy Day story. This is about to happen, sort of, maybe not all the way. but So during Yom Kippur, which is a fasting purification end of the High Holy Days, there's this service called the Musaf and the rabbi. In the middle of it, he's all dressed in white. He's magnificent. He's got a big prayer shawl and all that. And he goes down. This is the only time that Jews do a prostration. And it's only the rabbi. So he does a full prostration in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And he calls out, in Hebrew, but the words mean, Oh God, I am nothing before you. Kind of this selfless thing. It's kind of like, it's the pinnacle. And At this particular service, the cantor was so moved by, actually, a little jealousy. (laughs) And he goes down, too. This is not traditional. And he says, oh, God, I am nothing before you. And then in the back row, Sid Blumenthal, who's the janitor, is so moved. He's the broom, you know. He's so moved. He gets out in the aisle and he goes down and he calls out loudly, Oh God, I am nothing before you. And the cantor says to the rabbi, Look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> it could be like that, you know. So we have to watch ourselves with our practice. If we make a little progress, good, keep going. If, um, on the other hand, we get all puffed up, because we had some fabulous experience or something like that. It's not the end of the world, but it's not so good. And it'll create an obstacle in the future. And the last thing we need is more obstacles. um Lingpa, who was the origina- originator of these teachings... Uh, as far as we know, they may go back before him, but he is the one that we know uh, kind of put them all together, said that planting a seed of bodhicitta, bodhicitta is awakened mind, that's what we're all working towards here, does not grow well in soil that is too clean. It grows much better in soil that is dirty. And fertilized. And that's what I mean. This evaluation is important. We got to actually see not, we should be encouraged about any progress we have, but we should rejoice over the dirt that's still there because it's through these practices that we transform that and we actually grow. Um, And that's why we do sending and taking practice, like even when it's the worst, as Lama Kathy often, often, often teaches. So if you're angry, it's yes, fine, that happens. Just think to yourself, may my anger contain all the anger of everybody else in the universe who's angry right now. And may we all one day be free of it. You can say a little prayer to yourself. So now you've used your anger, your dirt, to actually train yourself. And if you do this enough, and frankly, that's a thing that I can do all day long because I'm always having flare-ups of one kind or another. You know, it's like it really, really helps in two ways. One, it ingrains the teachings in your heart. You don't have to memorize anything. It's in there. It becomes the habit. It's the way the poster is getting rolled backwards so it hangs straight, creating a new habit. That's one way. The other way is changing a little bit the aspiration, the attitude, from being self-centered to being altruistic. And that's ultimately ultimately, the key, is that we're aimed towards altruism. Um, the 20th slogan is of the two witnesses, attend to the principal one. Well, who are the two witnesses? There's me with seeing me from inside of me. Me, 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 me. This is what this whole talk's about. And then there's you seeing me. And you may think anything. You may think that I'm just Wonderful, or something like that. Or you may think, I'm really blowing this talk, or something like that. Regardless, the one you have to rely on is inside yourself. Only you can know your own motivation. Only you can know your own aspiration and intention. And so you have to check those things as part of this process. There's another joke for that. So... This guy needs a new suit. He does. He really needs it. He's going to be in a wedding or something. And everybody says, like Donald Trump, everybody says so, that this is the greatest tailor that you could ever go to. You see his clothes, they're beautiful. So he goes to the greatest tailor anybody could ever see, and they take the measurements and starts to get fitted, and he comes back for a fitting a week later. And he makes marks on the clothes where they gotta be like sewn and changed and make a perfect fit. Beautiful fabric. Oh my gosh. Third week, he comes back, suits all ready. He gets in front of that three-way mirror where all you can see is me. And he puts on the suit and is absolutely horrified. Because there's a lump of fabric hanging out here and there's another one here. He looks like a hunchback in the jacket. And he says, this is disgusting. This is horrible. I, this is not a good suit. How could you have done this? And the guy says, this suit fits perfectly. He said, so the pant leg's a little long. Just, and, and the butt's got too much fabric in it. So just grab a handful of fabric here, like this, and just hold it. And the jack's a little loose there. So grab it here. Lean, yeah, lean that way so the shoulders are even. And yeah, see, now it fits perfect. Looks great. And the guy goes, actually, he buys it. He goes walking out in the street after he pays for it. And there are two little old ladies compassionately looking at him and saying, Oh, look at that poor crippled person. And the other one says, Yeah, but the suit fits him (laughs) perfectly. And that's how we are. We have this, you know, this self that we're getting rid of with all our preferences and all our habits and all that this is the suit that we're in. The guy that actually walked in the tailor looking for the suit who was upright and kind of okay, that's sort of our natural self, our Buddha nature. So as we start working on using these practices to wear down the obstacles, to wear down this like false self, I think some psychologists call it that or small self or whatever this um self-image that we have it's we're just we're just getting out of an ill-fitting suit that's really the way to see it that's what it is we're getting it out of an ill-fitting suit um If you can see yourself like taking the jacket off and you feel like that's progress and you have that tenderness that Trungpa was talking about in that first quote that I read and you can see a little progress, that's good. But even if you don't feel that way,
1: that's okay too.
0: If you... um can just recognize these are really precious teachings. And one day, I hope I can get into them. One day, I hope I can progress enough that I can begin to incorporate them in my life. That's good. So when you evaluate yourself because you've got an ill-fitting suit, don't be harsh. Be tender. Be tender-hearted towards yourself. You're likely to be able to be tender-hearted towards others if you if you are. And again, that's the object of the exercise of relative bodhicitta. The 21st and last point, I think it's the last point. No, there's a 22nd point, sorry. Um, the 21st point, though, is really, to me, the key thing. Uh, for understanding how to evaluate our practice. And it says, at all times, rely on a joyful mind. That means just what you think. At the end of the day, when you go home and hit the pillow and you're ready to fall asleep, if you've been able to really be of benefit to somebody, you're probably going to have a joyful mind. You'll be happy that you could help. Seriously. Um, Somebody this week said, uh, we ought to erect a statue in Houston to the average Joe with a bass boat. I loved that. Whoever that average Joe with the bass boat was, whether we erect a statue or not, I promise you at the end of the day, he was just genuinely happy in a very pure way because he was able to help some people, some animals, whatever. It's like that for all of us. And conversely, if we're just terribly self-involved and worried about what's going to happen to me and on my job, and do they hate me, and do they like me, what am I going to do about this, our head hits the pillow, and there's no joy in that. There just isn't. So we have to mindfully live. We have to watch our minds. And the more we employ these practices of mind training, frankly, the more joyful we'll get. It's not a bad bargain. If, on the other hand, we're not... You've got to be genuine about that, though. If, on the other hand, we don't have much joy, okay, then there must be some obstacle from that teaching, for that teaching can't sink into me. What's in the way? We have to look at that. That's part of this... Evaluation process. So look for the obstacles. And then use the practices to transform them. They're the dirt. It's good. Find those things. They'll become good fertilizer. Um, and when you start finding good fertilizer and recognizing it as such, so even when bad stuff happens, you're happy. That's pretty cool. Because this is an opportunity for transformation again. Um, the 22nd, the 22nd point is if you can practice when distracted, you are well trained. And I think that speaks for itself. It's what we're all working on. So at first, we got to roll the poster backwards. But eventually the thing just hangs straight, which means that no matter what comes up, somehow you react with a kind of bodhicitta. You react with some kind of altruistic mind rather than what's going to happen to me. Then you know you're well-trained. When you look at yourself that way and you realize you're not well-trained yet, like I do, Um, it's disappointing. But it doesn't mean that we're a failure. It's not a matter of looking like a good practitioner to anybody else. Or even to ourselves, because until we got some insight, we probably not... You you gotta believe what's inside of you first, but we're still probably not, you gotta accept that you're not seeing it entirely clearly. Um, what Tranga Rinpoche says, um, it's a matter of putting our heart into it and trying our best. The direction is the thing. Aspire to being a Buddha. Always. Every day. Make that an aspiration, that you will become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. That sounds kind of highfalutin. So on the one hand, we realize that, that didn't happen yet. But on the other hand, we can put our heart into it and try our best. And that is that is what we need to do. Um, so, there's like 10 minutes left for any questions, answers. I hope you've got the answers. Uh, but questions, co- comments, or anything else like that. Because that is the end of the evaluation talk. No questions? No comments? Well, thank you. Well, I can read you a story if you want. I have a story. It's called Perfect Joy. It's from yet another religion. Um, It's one of my favorites, actually. So I brought it with me. And I thought this might happen. So try this on. Have you all heard of St. Francis of Assisi? All around great guy, uh, and this is a story, uh, about him that was written like a long time ago, 13th century, right when he was alive. So he and, um, He and his attendant, Brother Leo, were walking through the countryside, and he said, Brother Francis, what is perfect joy? Oh, and by the way, talk about a broom. Francis always was a brother. He never became a priest. He's an actual example of what Akon Rinpoche was talking about. So it was winter, and they were both shivering from the cold. And Francis called to Leo, Brother, if it were to please God that the friars, his followers, should give in all lands a great example of holiness and edification, write down and note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. A little further on, Francis added, Brother Leo, if the friars were to make the lame walk, if they should make straight the crooked, chase away demons, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, and what is even far greater work, if they should raise the dead after four days, write that this would not be perfect joy. As they walked, Francis kept adding to his litany, describing places where perfect joy would not be found. Finally, after several miles, it is said that Brother Leo wondered much within himself and then blurted out, I pray, teach me, where is perfect joy? And Francis, thinking perhaps, I thought you'd never ask, Answered Leo, If when we shall arrive at our destination all drenched with rain and trembling with cold, all covered with mud and exhausted from hunger, if when we knock at the convent gate, the porter should come angrily and ask us who we are, if after we have told him, we are two of the brethren. He should answer angrily. What you say is a lie. You two are imposters, going about deceiving the world and taking alms from the poor. Be gone. If then he refused to open to us and leave us outside, exposed to the snow and the rain, suffering from the cold and hunger until nightfall, If we accept such injustice, such cruelty, and contempt with patience, without being ruffled and without murmuring, believing with humility and charity that the porter really knows us and that it is God who makes him speak thus against us, write down, Brother Leo, this is
1: perfect joy.
0: Francis wouldn't leave it alone. Adding further, and if we knock again and the porter comes out in anger to drive us away with oaths and blows as if we were vile imposters saying, Be gone, miserable robbers, for here you shall neither eat nor sleep. If we accept this with patience, with joy, and with charity, O Brother Leo, write that this is indeed perfect joy. The question is, in, invo- in really looking at how we evaluate our mind training, as Francis was obviously pretty hardcore. Um, but let's simpl- simplify it, cut into the chase. I have this question I ask myself: Who is whining? I just look, who is it that's whining? And I go look for that person. It's an interesting experiment to do. Um, Because, you know, maybe not outside because it's not pretty, but inside I'll whine. I'll complain. There's plenty to complain about. So it's good to ask who's whining and look for that person. Robert Bly said, The greedy soul is abashed when we lose. Yet what feeds the true soul over and over is something being taken away. It stands our American values of competitiveness and winning, of always wanting to be happy, on its head. (laughs) And that's what the Dharma's doing too. It's standing all that on its head. It's turning it right over. All our winning, all our competing, all our judgments, all of that, all that we assume is going to bring us joy doesn't. But if we can actually take the derision that may come our way and pray for that person or take it in and say, may his anger come to me And may my happiness go to him. And may we one day all be free of all our afflictive emotions. Then we're well trained. And that's really what Francis was talking about. So anyway, that's about it. There still is a couple minutes for questions if I piqued any other interest.
2: Teaching.
1: Good to see you, ye.
2: Yes, I made it this time. I Uh, can't hear uh, you. Sorry, I made it this time to the teaching. So uh, I don't know what that means, but so all these teachings you gave us for today, the forum, so I lost track, four or five of them. Yeah. So how should we practice as an individual? Because there's so many, you know, it's hard to just go ahead and saying going practice all of these, or can we break down to each one? Or
0: you know, I think there's a lot. I think there are is it 57 slogans and all. I think it's the, there's a lot of slogans in mind training and the eight points. It's broken down, I think, into 57 slogans. So I think you have to see what appeals to you. When you read them through and think about them and see, hmm, this this hits the nail on the head. With these I would just contemplate them. Just take one and really think deeply and evaluate how how you're doing. And are these teachings changing your life in the direction of altruism and selflessness? And that's all that that's all that this whole whole talk was about, was really just evaluating whether you're real self-important still or whether that's getting less and less and your sense of, of this small little egotistical self is kind of the boundaries are loosening and you're there more for others.
2: Do you contemplate like throughout the day, or four times
0: a day, or? <laughs> That's a good question. So yeah, here's what I do. I and you know, I don't. Here's here's the way it is for me. Um, I usually I'll take some something you know that I read in Dharma or something from a practice that really sticks for me. That just feels like it resonates with me. And that's what I do. I carry it around all day, and I see what what it's like for me during the day to think about it in every situation and apply it in every situation. There are two benefits to that. One is I never have to memorize anything because eventually, it's very slow, but eventually I just learn that it becomes part of me without having to try to memorize anything. I'm bad at memorizing and the other thing is is that it kind of integrates in and um and it, it 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 becomes more fun even when times are bad it's something to play with the situation it's not just how i react it's like yeah this is how i react to this but the dharma says and then i can use it like an experiment like a scientific experiment and apply it and see what happens. That's sort of the way I do it. But I don't take the whole thing all at once. I take one piece and just do it a little chunk at a time.
2: Thank
1: you, Eric. Thank you. Good to see you. Okay, wow.
0: As they say in Looney Tunes, that's all, folks. But first, even after that, we should just take a moment to silently dedicate the merit of um, hearing the Dharma and, um, and the merit of practicing listening and patience. Thank you for your patience, and so on. So let's dedicate the merit uh, to the benefit of all sentient beings especially those that are suffering in uh, Bangladesh and Houston, other places where Mother Nature seems to have caused a lot of challenges, Um, wishing that all beings may instantly respond in an altruistic way. Thank you.